Tooth and Claw, Issue 9, England, Present Day. An upturned poker table lay splintered in the middle of the room, cards and chips scattered everywhere. A small fridge sat in the corner, but it was otherwise bare, save for the four dead men, bodies eviscerated and flung about, frozen in terrible abstractions. Ross couldn't be sure. It looked like four dead bodies, but it took a moment to piece them together. The smell, the smell left by the worm, carried the rich metallic tang of fresh blood, but the unmistakable odours of other viscera were there too. Drake looked at Ross, his eyes blank. The room was harshly lit by a single bulb, and the lurid melange of colours against the white, dirty walls danced in the dark of his eyes. One of the bodies was slumped against the far wall, left leg ripped off at the knee, his chest opened out onto his lap. His flesh was blistered and pussy, disintegrating slowly. It fizzed as it dripped from his chin to a pool of blood on the floor. Ross shook his head in disbelief. He changed when he did it, didn't he? Drake put his gun away and looked slowly around the room. The amount of damage, especially the corrosion. A bit overkill. Uh-huh. Doesn't really fit the MO, though. The worm has always kept a low profile. This looks like an indulgence. It's not a coincidence. He knew we were onto him, but he changed anyway. Ross, call the circle, get a containment set up here, and get in the car. We're going back to the lair. They raced back north, Drake driving with uncanny fluidity, slipping round corners at speed hurtling along the slick highway, the engine screaming as he pushed it. The black mass of night-shrouded marsh on either side of the road seemed to creep forward as it flashed by, encroaching. An endless daub of dark, wet chill. Drake brought the car to a skidding halt at the end of the dirt track. He leapt out, bounding over clumps of reed and small tangled knots of grass. Ross hurled himself after him, struggling to keep up as they sped towards the worm's lair. Same tactics as before. Ross quickly circled the building to meet Drake outside the entrance. Guns drawn, torches set wide and full. The tarpaulin still flicked violently in the gusts of wind that tore over the flat, but there was no wood smoke. A bed of silence lay under the tearing howls and the rustling murmur of the fens. Ross readied himself. For what, he wasn't quite sure. A quick, shared nod, and the two agents burst into the barn. Drake stalked quickly to the far end to check every corner. Ross's torchlight illuminated the old cupboard against the walls. The heavy chains had been ripped apart, curlicules of sharp metal hanging loosely from the half-opened door. Drake, Ross called as he approached the cupboard. With the end of his torch, he nudged the door open, taking a quick step back and raising his weapon. The cupboard was empty too. Drake appeared beside him. He peered at the bare shelves and shook his head. We're too late. We won't find him now. Ross frowned, then looked at Drake. Can't you locate him again? Not when he's on the move. Drake holstered his weapon and started towards the exit. He seemed to slide into a resigned torpor, his shoulders sunken, his words flat. He could be halfway to the wash by now. Ross followed him out into the night. 
You think he's headed toward the coast? Drake raised his head to the black sky and sniffed the air deeply. He sighed, took a cigarette from his pocket and lit it. The flame danced wildly in the breeze. If he's turned, he can cross these marshes quicker than we can drive over them. He'd be in the streams and dikes sliding through the waterways and over the reeds. He'd risk that? If he doesn't want to be seen, he won't be, Drake continued, exhaling a jet of smoke. And who's to say that's what he's done anyway? He could have headed inland or back to Lincoln. Duckstone? Maybe, Drake replied wearily. He's not going to be sat with him on the St. Charles estate watching snuff movies either way. Then we take Duckstone in. That would be the correct procedure. Drake turned to Ross now, fixing him with a cold stare. Do you think we could take Duckstone in if he didn't agree to it? Ross looked back at him. The orange pinprick of the cigarette was the only light in Drake's blank eyes. Ross felt some kind of knowledge pass between them, cold and uncaring. Drake presenting him with some half-hidden truth, almost daring him to confront it. Ross felt ideas slide into place, disparate thoughts tessellating into a greater whole, yet still only some small part of it revealed, the rest still in shadows. Could he see a faint smile skirt the edges of Drake's mouth? This is just the beginning, isn't it? Another near-silent drive took them back to Lincoln. Drake had not uttered a word since they were back in the car. Ross felt discombobulated, the last 48 hours emerging a series of driving and rain and smoke and unanswered questions. The early morning hours left the roads near empty, heightening the isolated glare of the streetlights against the huddled architecture of the city. Drake lazily manoeuvred the car through the tangled one-way systems and twisting junctions, running red lights and drifting through stops, his eyes never leaving the centre of the road, vanishing point. Only when they pulled up outside the police station it started towards the entrance did Drake finally speak. We're heading back to the circle. I need to talk to Humphrey. But first, we've got to have a word with Howard. Ross gave a curt nod. What do we tell him? Just follow my lead. Howard was already waiting for them in his office, a steaming cup of black coffee in his hand. His eyes were bloodshot and his hair bobbled into cramped tufts on his head. He scowled at them as they entered. You do know what time this is? Yep, Drake replied. Coffee's a good idea. Get it down, you detective. I'm going to need your full attention. Howard's face turned slightly grey. Ross wasn't sure if Drake wasn't smiling. Again. Agent Ross and I are leaving in the morning, but I'm sure you'll see us before long. What is it? Howard asked. It's not all bad, Drake continued. You won't have to worry about the Ardellian gang any longer. Howard looked quizzically at him, then at Ross, then back at Drake. Something went down in Grantham then, he said carefully, trying to slow his imagination. He put his drink on the table, rubbed his eyes. That coffee's making my throat burn. Howard, this has to stay between us, said Drake. We've got the scene contained, and it's not going through the Grantham Constabulary. In a day or two, it'll be like nothing happened. Howard scratched his chin roughly and widened his eyes a few times. And the Ardellians? Gone. Well, I don't see how this is a bad thing, Howard said confidently. If you're taking care of it, we don't have to worry about Duckstone. He's back where he wants to be. He checked himself quickly. I mean, it's just one set of fuckers for us to keep an eye on now, you know? Drake definitely smiled this time. Of course. However, I don't think Duckstone is where he wants to be anymore. 
What do you mean? I mean, from now on, you keep four of your best men on Duckstone at all times, and another two on the sun. Six officers, your best. And they report directly and only to you. And you report directly and only to me or Agent Ross. Your captain will know enough about this by the morning to authorise what you need to do. But you don't talk to him about it either. Howard seemed ruffled now, his face red and sweaty. His collar looked tight. The phone started to ring dimly from the other end of the station. What do I tell the men watching him? Improvise, Howard spluttered. Ross leaned forward and handed him a card. My personal number, daily reports. Halfway to the card, Howard's hand stopped. He looked at Drake. Take it, Drake said harshly. Howard's head jolted backwards, his face suddenly animated by quick, feverish shock. He looked alert, clear. Then a fuzz came over him, a confusion. What, Drake said again? He took the card from Ross's hand with a slow, reflexive automation. Drake suddenly brightened. He leaned forward and placed a hand firmly on Howard's shoulder. Excellent, detective. We'll talk soon. Howard looked dumbly down at the card in his hand, then up at the backs of the two agents as they strode away. The echoing chime of the phone still rang around the empty hallways. Sydney, Australia, 15 years earlier. Robert sensed them before he kicked the door open. Two men in the alley, blocking any escape through the back. They were both large, wearing black suits and wielding small, stained wooden bats, chipped and dented from frequent use. Robert let go of Lianhua's hand and launched himself down the steps without thinking. He felt a portion of the energy that glowed in his centre surge through his hips and into his right leg. It hit the heel of his foot like the crack of a whip as he connected with the chest of the man to his left. The impact made a harsh thudding sound and the man was thrown against the wall behind him with such force it knocked him out cold. Before the other could react, Robert had balanced his now crouched form with his hands and swung his left leg around in an arc, sweeping his enemy's legs so he toppled abruptly onto his backside. Robert propelled himself forward onto his knees and brought the heel of his hand down, hard onto the man's nose. The ball of energy in his dantien allowed another sliver of energy to course up through his heart, into his shoulder and down the length of his arm into his hand. He felt the movement before he had made it. It happened so quickly the man didn't even have time to gasp. Robert felt no pain. He held out his hand to Lianhua. Come on, we've got to get out of here. Suddenly a massive wave of sound and heat burst from back inside the restaurant. The approach of a tsunami. It shook the walls of the building and made the loose bitumen on the ground dance up in little jumps. Grandfather, Lianhua screamed, turning back to the storeroom. Robert felt the energy rise up through his chest again, but this time it filled his throat and ballooned up into his mouth. As he spoke, he could sense the dark red ripples his words made in the air as they rushed towards Lianhua and spiralled around her head. Lianhua, look at me. His voice chorused into split frequencies, each duplicating the power of the initial tone, the harmonics deepening the force of his intent through the accumulated power of their vibrations. With some effort, she turned from the door, back to Robert. We must go now. Lianhua shook her head, tears in her eyes as another mighty noise burst from behind her, the whole street now seeming to rumble. She faltered for a moment, feeling the pull of the restaurant, her own need to save her grandfather at any cost against Robert's words and the strange power they had over her, a power she had only ever felt in the presence of Chen Tang. Another huge noise from inside, though different this time, 
a conflagration of birds, a teeming of wildcat roars, the mass wailing of propicidian grief. Robert and Lianhua both shivered, a primal response long forgotten. In her, one that almost made her fall into an unconscious terror. In him, one that phased quickly into a lusting to join, to experience. Lianhua teetered on the top step. Anyone left in there is dead, Lianhua. Maybe anyone nearby too. We have to go. Trembling, she stuck her left foot out over the top step, a high peak above a dark abyss. Robert reached up from the dark of the alley and took her hand in his, locking her eye to eye, the darting jet fluctuating in the deep brown of wet opalescence. She hurried down the steps. They turned from the restaurant and ran back through the alley, through the car park, and back onto George Street, headed for Robert's flat. They collapsed in his front room. Robert spread with exhaustion on the sofa. Lianhua sat against the wall, hands clasped over her knees, curled in a ball. The room was silent, and though the steady buzz of passing traffic outside the window connected them to the sounds of the outside world, they existed in a thick bubble of their own thoughts. It was a small flat. Robert kept it relatively neat. He didn't have many things. A small television on the back wall, record player next to it, two speakers sat at odd angles on the floor. A tiny red sofa bed was against the wall opposite the one window. An armchair faced the TV. The wallpaper was a faded cream with large blue stars spread out over it. It hadn't been changed since he'd moved in. Lianhua spoke first. She'd stopped crying. He's dead, isn't he? Robert looked at her from the sofa and sat forward, hands on his knees his voice unsteady. We can't know for sure. He felt her pull back from his hesitation. He tried again as he knew this was the real answer. His voice dropped, barely a whisper. There was so much violence, so much power. Lianhua nodded at the floor. In front of her was the book Chien Tang had given Robert. She reached out slowly and stroked the front cover, an absent look in her eyes, like she was dimly searching for something. The touch of her flesh and the ancient hide suggesting a possibility. She recoiled from it as if burnt, her vision snapping into focus. She turned to Robert, her face set in determination. He wanted you to have this, Robert. There must be a reason. Picking up the book, she moved toward him and held it out. Robert extended a hand tentatively. As he did so, their fingers touched. The bolt of warmth they had so often felt between them jolted back and they saw each other for a brief moment as they had both wanted to see each other, in the desire of their idea of how they could be. Inwa felt the guilt first and hardest, Robert only after she had moved her hand quickly away from the book and from him. You can keep it if you want it, he said, his voice small and unsure. She shook her head firmly, a penitent resolve suffusing her being. No. Grandfather saw something in you, Robert, and there must be something or you wouldn't be here, now, alive. Robert felt his own pain rise above his shock, appearing as frustration, as unwanted responsibility. I have no fucking clue what it is, though, he shouted, his voice weak now, just a human voice, powerless and exposed in the void of the vast. My grandfather knew what he was doing, Robert, she yelled back angrily her face reddening, the jet shooting around her brown eyes in a maddened vortex. He didn't have to give you his blood to save you. He didn't even have to take you in from the alley that night. He did it because I asked him to. And he didn't have to stand and fight. Her voice broke then, 
the last syllable stuttering into small gulps and barks. She fought back tears with a wrenching cry. Robert placed the book on the floor and knelt in front of her. He put his arms around her and she fell into his chest, muffling sobs into his vest. He held her that way for, he wasn't sure how long. She slowly moved her head back and wiped her eyes with her white shirt sleeves, smearing daubs of mascara into the material. A waitress shirt. Would she need it again? She smiled a little and took a short breath, which she let out with a sigh. Her slim hand, no longer trembling, reached up to Robert's cheek and caressed it gently, smiling with weary gratitude. The warmth flowed back between them. There was no guilt this time. Robert felt his mind crumble and tumble behind his eyes at the sensation. It fell down deep into him and there met the utter disarray of what had happened, what he had felt at the restaurant. He felt faint. Okay, he said, taking Lianhoa's hand softly into his own and moving it slowly from his face. I need a bit of fresh air and a drink. He stood up and took both her hands in his. She looked at him with concern. I'm sorry, Robert. I No, Lianhua, please. Nothing to apologize about, I promise. I'm not going far. There's a bottle shop next door. I just need a moment, I think. She looked at him and for a moment he saw Chen Tang. Chen Tang, when he'd handed Robert the book, there was no hiding from it. She was happy with what she saw, but still there was doubt. She got up and moved to the window, leaning ever so slightly out from the side so she could scan the streets below. I can't see any of them. Please be quick, Robert. Robert smiled and turned towards the door. I'll be a couple of minutes, tops. He unlocked the two latches on the door and opened it to the dim hallway. Two Caucasian men were stood in front of him, one about six foot tall, the other taller still. Robert took a step back. They were almost in the doorframe. The shorter one smiled pleasantly at him from under a thin, well-kept moustache. He wore a checked tweed suit, his thick blonde hair sculpted into a shallow wave. He extended a hand. Good evening, Mr. Drake. How are you feeling? A little rattled, no doubt. His voice was almost jolly, with an accent Robert couldn't place. Robert ignored the offered hand and just looked quizzically at the stranger. The hand was withdrawn with a curt nod. Then the man leaned forward sharply and noted Lianhua by the window. A delightful sentry, if you don't mind me saying so, Mr. Drake. Another curt nod. Nothing to be afraid of, miss. We just need to have a chat with Mr. Drake here. He turned back to Robert, but his eyes glanced past him to the book on the floor. They remained there as his voice focused on Robert. If you'll be so kind as to come with us, Mr. Drake. It may be quite an extended chat, but I'm not going anywhere, Robert said loudly, his shock diminishing and being replaced with annoyance. And you haven't said who you are. There'll be time for that, Mr. Drake, the man said, again smiling, non-threatening. The other larger man, however, Robert moved to close the door on them. You know, it's been a long day and quick as a flash, the larger man shot out a trunk of an arm and jammed the door open. Sorry, Mr. Drake, the small man said with a disappointed sigh. In a blur, he swept his hand out from under his jacket towards Robert's neck. Robert felt a tiny sting on his skin. He moved his hand to the impact point. His eyes blurred and a huge gravity pulled on the back of his head. Really didn't want to have to do that. The last thing Robert heard was Lianhua screaming his name. The last thing Robert saw was the man's elegant fingers on the syringe. Written and recorded.
recorded by James Fisher. Edited and read by Andy Bennett. Music by Aquifer. Thank you.